recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 27 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. And you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at PR Law Podcast. All one word, PR Law Podcast. Uh, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel or SoundCloud to not miss an episode. Uh, and we've also launched a newsletter, which we talked about briefly last week. So you can sign up to get notified of new episodes and other news about the show. Uh, you can sign up at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, what's happening? You're not in Toronto this week. No, I was just going to say we um, we should do a, a brief, small amendment of our intro there, because uh, this week we're coming live from Hong Kong and Vancouver Island. That's I met right. the, uh, the Christie family compound um, for a couple days, which is awesome. And of course, the complete and polar opposite of Toronto in almost every way, shape and form. So um yeah it's it's nice it's a little little more laid back here so and, for uh, our global listeners who don't know where vancouver island is you might want to explain that it's not vancouver uh it's not even on the same piece of land as vancouver but so where is it you yeah it's um it's southwest of vancouver i guess geographically and and to put it in perspective and cam i know you'll appreciate this having uh having grown up here as well um as you know, you and I worked at a gas station many, many, best, many, best many job, years ago. Best job I ever had. And yeah, well, yeah, it was a great job. And and as you might recall, it was sort of kind of one of those last stop gas stations before the airport. So we used to get tons of people who were flying into the island and visiting from elsewhere that would kind of stop and fill up their their cars. And we'd get the craziest questions, um, often from tourists from Toronto, things like, where's the bridge to Vancouver? <laughs> and uh, to put in perspective, the ferry, the passenger ferry, which is huge and carries, I don't even know how many vehicles and passengers, takes an hour and a half to travel from Vancouver Island to the lower mainland, to Tawasin, which gets you into Vancouver proper, Um it's it's a huge island to put in perspective. People do not go to Vancouver to buy groceries and see movies, which was another question that I would often get while pumping gas for tourists. Um, it's a pretty cool, special, unique spot. And if any of our listeners have an opportunity to get out here, they should. Often people will go to Vancouver. They won't pop over to the island. And um, I think that's a mistake because it's it's one of the best parts of the whole province. Yeah, that's 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 well said. And I was just thinking of the same thing. There were people that came through that gas station who said like, so you live on this island? And I would say yes. And they'd say, but what about like if you need to buy something or do something? <laughs> I was thinking, you know, there's 
400,000 people in Greater Victoria. It's not, I mean, it's not a huge metropolis or anything, but it's certainly got all the amenities that you would need. Um, and yeah, the island is big. You can get in the car and drive for five, six hours uh, and st- north and still be on the island. Um, so it's, 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 there's lots of uh, nice places to see uh, along there. And you and I know one of the, one of the issues is that uh, Toronto, it's, uh, it's good that you're not in Toronto right now because there's a big COVID outbreak there. What, what happened? Yeah, well, and that was certainly one of our concerns in flying. As you know, Cam, we were we were tested. Myself, my my wife, and my daughter. Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were we were we were clear to travel and that we wouldn't possibly be infecting anybody um, all along the way. Because, of course, planes is you know, effectively just giant petri dishes. So um, our tests came back all clear. We were okay, but yeah, it's a bad it's a bad situation in in Toronto right now in Ontario in general. So parts of the province have have gone back to sort of stage two, we call it, which means that, you know, indoor dining is banned, gyms and fitness centers and casinos are closed. And, um, you know, there's new limits on public events. So they're capped at 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors. So not a good scene. We've been seeing upwards of 800 cases a day in the province of Ontario. So, um, yeah, not a, not a bad time to sort of get out of Dodge. Yeah, no kidding. You know, and the, the bigger picture here really is just that this is going to carry on for a while. This is something that's not going to go away uh, by December or by next spring. I keep hearing people say, yeah, there's going to be a vaccine by next February or March. And I think that's really wishful thinking. Um, and, you know, as these lockdowns happen, um, there's more debates about should there even be a lockdown? I mean, obviously, there's, you know, economic consequences to these decisions, too. Um, and it's easy, I think, or not, or easier rather, if you are locking down for a set period of time and people know when that's going to end. But when there is no end and you keep sort of going through this cycle, I can see how that gets very frustrating for people and scary too. Uh, but that's where we're at. And we're seeing this in Toronto, but in a lot of other places as well. Yeah. And I mean, a huge part of it, at least in, in a Canadian context, and we've talked about this before, is the weather, right? It As it's getting cooler, people are heading back indoors. And as we know, transmission rates are significantly higher indoors than they are outdoors. And we've got children back at school. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really sort of concerned as to what's going to happen through through the fall and the winter when the weather really starts to get cold um, in in parts of Canada. It's and the United States. It's just not a it's not a good scene. It's really kind of scary. Yeah, even here, like we've been down to lower low single digits uh, in new cases per day, but over the last three or four days, that's gone up to almost double digits. So I mean, it's still low, but there have been a couple of of uh, small outbreaks, and um, even that has got people concerned and thinking about sort of more restrictions again, uh, not to let it get out of hand. Uh, so it's it's going to be. Geez, I don't know how this is going to end, to be honest, Ewan, but I, I just feel that we're a long way from being able to say, okay, we're done with COVID. We're safe now. We have a vaccine. I, I feel like that's a long, long way off. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PR Law Pod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. 
Okay, take it away, Ewan. All right. So, Cam, I wanted to talk about the performance improvement plan or a PIP, mm. as we call them in the employment law world. Um, I'm sure you've you've heard of these, Cameron. I know that you occupy a managerial role yourself, so you've probably had to sit down a, Very familiar. a employee once or twice yep. and, and, and put them or develop a performance improvement plan. So, you know, I wanted to sort of talk about this from a, there's obviously lots of ways to kind of tackle this issue in terms of concerns for employers and concerns from the employee perspective. So let's sort of start with employees. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is it's come up with my files over the past few weeks. Um, You know, I had a client that came to me relatively recently that was put on a performance improvement plan and you sorry, know, you and I, talk sorry about- I want to cut you off there just a bit, Ewan. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is a performance improvement plan? I mean, I think it's, it's um, evident in the title, but can you kind of just give us a, a brief description of what it, what it constitutes? What is it for? How does it work? Yeah, so it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a tool that employers will place an employee on and they're used to help correct employee performance. I mean, it's really as basic as that, right? So you have an employee who's sort of consistently making errors or, you know, isn't hitting a particular threshold in terms of performance, you know, and a performance improvement plan is really, you know, ideally speaking, it's an opportunity to give the employee um, to sort of pull their socks up. And kind of get the standard up to to that of mm-hmm. their their fellow colleagues and meet those thresholds to keep the employer happy. That's that's basically it, Cam. Mm-hmm. Right on. And we call them uh, pips here as well, uh, employee improvement plans. Yeah. Well, you know, so here's what I wanted to sort of discuss from the employee perspective, because this happens a lot, and often it will happen. You know, I'm, I'm not there to sort of counsel an employee at the time that they receive their PIP or put on their PIP. I often don't come across these employees until after they've been terminated. And one of the things I really, really wish I could sort of go back in time with some of these employees and sit down with them when they receive the performance improvement plans. Because one, you know, one of the big, big things is employees assume that when they receive these, they just sort of have to sign off on the dotted line and that's the end of it. Well, I mean, as any employment lawyer will tell you, there is almost always two sides to every story. And just because your employer has taken the position that your performance is struggling and you haven't met particular thresholds, there may be some very, very valid reasons for that. You may have some personal issues going on. You may have um, some health-related issues. You may have some disability-related issues or something that requires accommodation. And unless you as the employee take the time to sort of draft a written response to that PIP, the only thing that you have a permanent record of is the employer's position. And when it comes time to sort of put forward an argument in terms of a, you know, a wrongful dismissal complaint after an employee has been terminated, for example, it's very, very difficult if you have, say, one or two or even three um, pips that an employee has been put on and there's no written record or response from the employee sort of pushing back and taking a position in terms of what their side of that story is. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because obviously this is something that I deal with at a, at a manager level a lot of times. And, and yeah, it is often, um, it's, it's a path towards letting that employee go because, um, it, yeah, it usually means that there's enough of a problem there that it's worth flagging in a very serious way um, with an intention to really get the employee to improve 
sometimes often quite dramatically, in fact, um, or they would be let go. So your advice here really for the employee from their side is when this improvement plan comes down and it says, you know, we now expect you to do A, do B, do C, fix E, whatever it might be, that the employee can provide almost a rebuttal to that. Is that right, Ewan? So they can say, actually, you know, I, I've done pretty well on these things and here's the, here's the supporting uh, evidence of that, but you know, I'll, I'll work on these other things. Is that sort of what you're suggesting? Yes. Not only, not only can they do that, Cam, they absolutely should do that. And, you know, an even better thing to do is seek out some counsel that you can sit down with to help you craft that response, you know, because these documents, they look, they can look really intimidating and really scary, right? They're Mm -hmm. sort of done, you know, they're signed off on by your manager. They're typically drafted by someone in in HR and you get this three or four page document that talks about, you know, how terrible your performance has been. And then effectively says, you know, sign on the dotted line, acknowledging your receipt. Um, You know, it's intimidating. And a lot of employees, they feel terrible. They're embarrassed. They don't know what to do. So ultimately, they just sign on the dotted line and and that's it when really there may be some very very good reasons um, as to why their performance is suffering so you know if if those employees if you don't feel like you're in a position to comfortably sit down and draft a response yourself sit down with counsel and go over it you can kind of go through them point by point and you can draft a point by point response and again the reason why this is critically important cam is that if you don't and your employer does go on to terminate you, one of the first things that their counsel is going to rely on, should you as a terminated employee decide to sue for wrongful dismissal, they're going to turn to those to those pips. They're going to look mm-hmm. at them. They're going to throw them back in your face and they're going to say, well, well, look, you signed on the dotted line. You didn't take any position or, or have any sort of contrary evidence to support any argument against poor performance and, and, you know, you're cooked. You're going to have a much more difficult time putting forth some sort of argument as an employee in that situation. Yeah. That, that improvement plan is the evidence that they need in order to let the employee go. It's critical to that. But I think you touched on something, Ewan, which is the intimidation factor. I mean, I, I think when employees are in this situation, there's obviously the intimidation, but there's also the, if they, if they want the job, if they don't want to be let go, I think when they look at a document like that or a plan like that, going to a lawyer or providing a rebuttal can be seen as um, sort of an aggressive response, one that would not endear themselves to management. Um, and I think this goes along with what you were just talking about. And that's a difficult spot to be in uh, because ultimately, if the employee wants the job, then they do want to make these improvements and hope that, that this goes away. Um, and then that would maybe potentially suffocate their their response if there could have been one. Yeah, you're, you know what? You're, you're absolutely right. And, I, and I'm not necessarily suggesting it. it really, you have to examine this on a case by case basis. But what I often do, and frankly, more often than not, what I what I do and what I recommend to clients in these situations is let's sit down and I can effectively help ghostwrite a response for you. So we'll go through the performance improvement plan. We'll go through it point by point and we can try and address these points individually. And if there is sort of compelling arguments, let's let's get it down on paper. But ultimately, it's the employee 
that submits it. It goes under the employee's name. It doesn't come on letterhead from a lawyer um, precisely for the, for, for the, for the points that you make cam that you don't necessarily want to rock the boat if you don't need to. So, you know, have somebody sit down and they can help you ghostwrite that letter that you ultimately submit on, on your own behalf rather than coming from counsel. Yeah, that's very good advice. So let's walk this through the next step then. So this is submitted by the employee. Um, and let's say that management then feels at the end of that uh, improvement plan term that the employee should be let go. How will this letter or this rebuttal help their case at that stage? Well, it, it, it gives counsel some fodder. That's really what it comes down to, right? So, and again, let's be honest. It's not as though employers who are putting forth these, these, these pips and giving them to employees, this is a great, great tool for employers. And frankly, if you're an employer, you have to go this route. You have to try and lay out some arguments, some evidence of progressive discipline to show that you didn't go from an employee who was hired, who was seemingly performing well to terminating them overnight, right? You want to show some evidence of progressive discipline. And these PIPs are the one of the best ways and one of the most effective tools for an employer to do that. However, if and when you do terminate the employee, and that employee goes and seeks out counsel, that counsel is going to want to be able to rely on a response that the employee gave them because they're going to need something and you're going to want to try and extract and raise whatever arguments you possibly can. So it's much, much better for that employee's counsel to have something that they can point to in terms of a letter. And hopefully there is some legitimate argument. Hopefully there was something that was raised by that employee in the response that you can kind of latch on to perhaps an issue of disability or perhaps a mitigating factor such as, you know, a, a loss of a family member or, um, you know, a separation from a partner, these sorts of things. But again, in the absence of that, well, you know, you're not really left with much as, as, you know, employees counsel in that situation other than to try and construct some sort of wrongful dismissal argument. So anything that you can give your lawyer and, you know, much like the employment relationship right from the get-go, we've talked about the importance of a good employment agreement before CAM. It's not necessarily about, you know, assuming that the relationship is going to go sour. It's that you make sure that you're prepared every step of the way as an employee and as an employer, if and when that relationship does ultimately sour. Right. And that is really good advice. Second time I've said that. Um, so you, and so if, if that is the um, plan, so, I mean, there's a, the employer comes and says, okay, employee, um, we're, we're going to put you on this improvement plan, the improvement plan. Um, the, the, the employee writes the rebuttal letter, which is obviously saved in the file. The improvement plan comes to an end. The employer wants to terminate, but there is this letter. So at this stage, then is this um, a negotiation? Because like you say, you, if, if you're terminated, you, you have a wrongful termination potentially, um, but is the negotiation at that stage really about severance or is it about keeping the job or could it be either one? Yeah, I mean, ultimately it could be either one, right? Um, you know, you could sit down with the employee at that point if you're the employer and you could say, look, this really, we just don't think this, this relationship is working out. You know, we're prepared to offer you a reasonable severance package. We're not looking to kick you out the door. And sometimes for an employer, 
it, it you're going to save a lot of money in the long run by paying off an employee um, and getting them out of your workforce than keeping them around trying to build a case for cause. You know, we've talked about that before as well, Cam, the just cause mm-hmm. argument, whereby as an employer, you are not obliged to pay an employee any termination, pay or severance. It's a really, really high threshold to meet. And even if you're sort of regularly administering, you know, PIPs, it can still be difficult, particularly if an employee sits down with, with counsel and that counsel is, is able to sort of draft a compelling rebuttal and perhaps raise some argument around, you know, that, that could raise the ire of a possible discrimination argument, something that is going to give the employer cause to pause in terms of terminating them for cause, right? Oh, I just, that was a lot of rhymes, cause for pause. <laughs> <laughs> I should have written that down. That's fantastic. Um, but you know where I'm going. Yeah. So you, you've got to be careful. Okay. I, and I want to flip this around then to the employer side too, because um, there's obviously risk in this when the employer puts these plans together um, as, a, as a potential justification down the line for a dismissal. Um, what advice would you have for employers when they're putting these kinds of plans together and, and how they sort of communicate them? Yeah, again, great, great, great question, because there's some terrible, terrible pips that I see. Um, and again, this really should be easy. Um, here are sort of some of the, the typical hallmarks that every pip should include. You need to address the basic area of concern. Why are, why are you putting this employee on a pip in the first place? right? What are the performance issues? You've got to clearly lay them out. You've got to clearly delineate them. You've got to raise specific examples. They should be arranged chronologically with clear dates. Um, The employer, when they're putting these together, if they have any sort of documented evidence in terms of email exchanges or paperwork, make sure that's that isn't necessarily included in the PIP, but make sure it's included in the employee's file so you can rely on it after the fact. Um, expectations. You know, what are, what are you expecting of the employee going forward? W- what is it that they need to do that they haven't been doing? Um, and then the goals. Set out the performance improvement goals, right? So, again, you want to maybe list some of the actions um, that they need to take to sort of get to whatever that level of performance that's expected, that has to be there too. And these, these performance improvement goals, they have to be specific. And this is one of the big issues, Cam. Often you see, uh, you know, pips that have been drafted by HR where they're using sort of loosey goosey, broad general language um, often because they're pulling from templates of previous pips and they don't speak to specific examples that pertain to that particular employee, this is a big, big, big no-no. Because again, you're just creating fodder for that employee's counsel to rip apart um, if and when these employees are ultimately terminated. Um, And then the timeline, right? I mean, the timeline is the other big one. So what's the timeline of the plan? When does it start? When does it end? Um, what happens upon the conclusion of it? Is there, you know, a further extension that's sort of built into the PIP, right? Um, And then always, always, always put it to the employee. What can we do for you as an employer? What are we not doing for you? Do you require any additional resources? Do you require any specialized or particular training? Again, it's a defense as an employer to demonstrate that you are doing everything in your power 
to accommodate that employee and make sure that they get that performance up to where it needs to be. Yeah, this is such a good subject to talk about, Ewan, because it really does affect everyone who is employed. I mean, if you have a job somewhere, there is the risk of having uh, this kind of plan uh, foisted upon you. Um, and then obviously for the, for the employers, it's the same thing. I mean, if you work with employees, you're going to have some employees who are uh, less than savory um, or, you know, who fall short of expectations. And so these, these are really real issues that, that really affect uh, a lot of people. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit prnlawpodcast.com. That's prnlawpodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, I'm going a little off the board, Ewan, uh, for the for the PR lesson today. And I I'm, love it. I I'm, love it. That I, sounds sounds great already. <laughs> I'm going to the Senate race in North Carolina. Um, and I don't know if you've been following this. I would not blame you if you were not. Uh, but at the moment, there is an incumbent Republican there by the name of Tom Tillis, who is running for re-election, and he's being challenged by a Democratic challenger, nominee Cal Cunningham. Uh, Cal Cunningham has been in the lead in the polls, uh, and it's a critical state because it could potentially flip the Senate uh, to the Democratic side if Cunningham wins. And this was going well up until October 1st. And on that day, an online news organization leaked screenshots of sexting between the married father of two and a PR consultant in California. Uh, by the name of Arlene Guzman Todd. She is also married uh, to an army veteran in California. So this broke on October 1st, and this is not a new story. I mean, the issues of sexting and extramarital affairs have been happening in politics and other fields for as long as as long as time. Um, so I think it's it's worth taking a look at this from a PR perspective when these things happen, because these are very, very difficult to manage when you are representing or working with um, a candidate like this, because there's a lot of different minefields here. And it's, it's I would say, very, very challenging to try and get the public um, on your side. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. Did you say that he was having an affair with a woman who works in PR. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So there is a valid PR angle <laughs> here outside of the obvious PR angle. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, wow. You know, and, and so, I mean, this was first reported on October 1st. Um, and, you know, like I said, you went off the top. The reason this kind of matters is it, it is the Senate that hangs in the balance here. I mean, there could be big, big um, implications of this um, if he wins or if if he loses this election. Um, but after that, that report on October 1st, he did address this publicly. And he said, quote, I have taken responsibility for the hurt that I've caused in my personal life. I've apologized for it, period. He didn't say too much more. Um, and then he was out and about on a, I believe it was a Saturday, and a TV crew caught up with him uh, and asked him some questions. And he did agree to, to speak. And so I'm going to play a little bit of that interview. Uh, the audio is a little bit loud because it is literally was caught by the TV crew out on the street when it happened. Um, so I will have the transcript of this in, in, in the, in the uh, show notes. But you can have a listen uh, to what he said. 
the truth I was speaking about then and I'm speaking about now are the issues that affect the lives of the people of this state, about health care, about building a stronger economy, about getting this virus defeated, and about making sure that the voices of North Carolinians are heard in Washington. I'm going to remain oriented and focused on that. That's exactly what I think people are looking to hire when they go into the voting booth, and that is a candidate and a person who is going to put them first in Washington, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Have you had any contact with Arlene Guzman Todd in the last couple of months? Look, I appreciate your personal questions. The campaign is about the people of North Carolina and the issues facing North Carolinians. Um, okay, so the first question there was about Arlene Guzman Todd, and he went off on talking about sort of what North Carolinians apparently care about. I would argue that North Carolinians do care about whether he is faithful to his spouse, um, especially uh, in, a, in, a, in a southern state. Um, so th- that didn't go well, in my view. And it's interesting when I take a look at this now, because he, he this has been going on for a while. It has been getting worse, though, as well. So at first, it was just, uh, you know, text messages flying back and forth between him and this woman in California. It then came to light that actually they had slept together uh, on multiple occasions, including in his marital home. Uh, And then it came to light that it looks like there were other mistresses too. Uh, Apparently one of them was devastated to find out that he had another mistress. Um, So this has gotten worse quickly. Uh, And I think, you know, you in these cases, and obviously the best way is to avoid getting into this muck in the first place. And I do think that the people who get involved in politics, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of narcissism in there, um, but also real ambition and potentially other other emotional or psychological issues, potentially, um, that could lead to also this kind of behavior. I do think that politics and sort of sexual dalliance or extramarital affairs could be two sides of the same coin uh, in some degree. But it's uh, it's it, he's in a very difficult spot at this point, and I don't think he has handled it that well. Well, yeah, that was going to be my, um, my, my question to you was – what did you think about his response? I mean, I, I, I understand and I take your point that, well, you know, maybe the residents and uh, of North Carolina, they do want to hear about this. But I mean, so are you can I infer from that then that you don't approve of uh, of his his response to that that question from the reporter? I uh, know I don't. In short, I don't approve of it. And here's here's why. And I've actually noticed this over the last few years. And it's um it started to kind of bother me because sometimes a PR approach works and because it works, people go back to it again and again and again over a long period of time. And it does lose its effectiveness after a while. So, and I think this argument of this is not something that people care about. um, We hear this on the, on the national scene a lot, you know, the American people actually care about a or B or C. um, And I think that that trope, that sort of moving it to somewhere else, but also claiming that the people support you in moving the focus somewhere else is no longer effective. That's my personal opinion because it's been used so many times. And to me also, it sounds a little bit um, entitled for him to be able to say what North Carolinians care about and what they don't. Um, and I, I don't think that's a good look either. Um, in this case, when, when these things happen, I do think you need to address it directly. I think it was good that he took responsibility for it, but it's only a few words. I, y- y- you haven't seen any um, indication that he understands the significance of this or the pain that he's probably caused his family um, in this situation. Uh, it, he, he's, he said sorry, but he is giving off an air of defiance. 
Um, and I might even say entitlement to some degree. And again, I'm not saying that he is those things, but that's how the messages are coming out. And that's not good. That's not helpful. And I think we're seeing that in the race now, that this was something that he looked like he was going to win. And now it's much tighter. So, uh, yeah, I, I, frankly, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. Um, but I mean, to what extent should politicians address these sorts of issues um, in public. I, I mean, you know, is it enough to say, yes, I did this thing. I'm sorry for doing this thing. I will never do this thing again, but I want to focus on, on the issues um, in, in, in that relate to the job and leave it at that. I mean, how extensively do you have to sort of discuss it? I mean, you know, reporters being reporters, that's the story, right? That's the salacious angle. They're going to keep hammering away um, on that aspect of the story. But I mean, to what extent can you finally say, look, I've addressed this. I've spoken to it. It's behind me. Let's move on. All right. There's lots in your question. So first, when, when you're running in politics, and actually even if you're taking senior roles in companies that might be media facing, they do background checks. And out of the background check, it's not just checking your, your, your credit or doing a Google search on your name. Like they want to know what what skeletons do you have in the closet? This is especially important for politics. And, you know, they, they will tell candidates, like, tell us everything. Like, we will keep it in this room. We will just, you know, it's just among us. It's for, it's for the candidate's benefit, actually. Because if they know what could come out, they can prepare for it in advance. And maybe it never does come out. But it's important to have your team ready. And that's really hard to do. I mean, it really is. I mean, nobody wants to sit down and, and share their sort of dirty laundry um, and some of their more embarrassing secrets. But it is important to do that. So that's the that's the first part um, is I don't know if he did that. I would suspect that he didn't. Um, but the second part, Ewan, where you talked about like, how much does he have to talk about this? I think he does need to have an event where there's media crews there. And I think he needs to come out and I think he needs to take questions on it in one event and be thorough. So he can come out, talk about what happened, talk about the chronology, talk about his guilt, how he's taking accountability for it, responsibility for it, how he's going to improve, what he's going to work on with his wife and take questions, uncomfortable questions, but do that, do it once and then move on. Because then at least you've, you've, you've gone out there, you, didn't cut it short. You took all of their questions. You were accountable. You faced the music. And that's what people want to see. And it looks like Cal Cunningham has not done that in this case. He's issued a short statement. He avoids the questions on media interviews. And that's just going to make it persist. It's just going to mean they're going to dig deeper and deeper. And they're going to keep asking him over and over and over again. And it's, there's no guarantee that if he does hold one event to go over this, that the questions will stop. But there's a much better likelihood that they'll stop if he can share everything, even things that are not out yet. Because what you want to do is take away any of the fuel that's on this fire, basically. And that's get all the information out there so there's no more discoveries. There's no more drip, drip, drip of new text messages, new new evidence, you know, new, new, new people coming forward. That's what's so damaging. Get everything out there. Get it done. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. And it's going to hurt your election chances. But it's still the best way forward because the drip, drip, drip and the avoidance makes it much worse. Well, what if the other details are that there wasn't just 
one or two mistresses, but there were four or five. I mean, is it still to is it still to your benefit to try and get ahead of it and get it all get it all out there in sort of extreme circumstances like that? Yes, like we've talked about on the show, you and it will come out. <laughs> you have to assume everything right, right. everything will come out. So it's better that if you bring it out, and he doesn't need to stand there and say you know, I've had six extramarital affairs since 1998 or something like that. Um, but he just needs to come out and say like, this is an issue. I've hurt some people. I've, you know, I've had extramarital affairs say S so, so people know it's plural. Um, but that sort of thing is, is bring it up and own it. Uh, because it takes away, because then if there's more evidence that comes out later, but he's already addressed it, it, it really takes the, the emphasis and the power out of that new information because he's already said it he's already brought it up so um it's not new it's not quite as exciting um as it was before and you can see you and like here's here's the one thing that it doesn't feel like in the moment but voters do look past this stuff in time there's so much evidence you know mark sanford um who had an extramarital affair ended up getting elected again uh, a couple of cycles later you look at anthony weiner for instance um, you know, these, these guys go through these embarrassments and they bounce back and people are willing to give them another chance. Um, and so that's why he has to be good about it because this isn't something new. Obviously a lot of people have been in his shoes and have done these things. Um, so he needs to own it. If he wants a career in politics, um, for a long time, then he, he has to own this fully now. Yeah, but I mean, what is it with these men, Cam? I mean, really, what is it with these men? And they all, they are always men that you're running for elected and public office. Do you not think that someone is going to figure this out, that they're (laughs) going to dig up these details? It's not like this is unprecedented. It's not like you can't point to countless politicians, regardless of political stripes. No particular party has monopoly on this particular issue. You would think that it would occur to individuals running for office that maybe if they're going to engage in extramarital affairs, they shouldn't run for public office. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just we see this time and time again, and it's so cliche at this point that, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what the goal is, is the goal that you think the public will get to a point where it's simply, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So it's another politician that's had an extramarital affair. Let's move on. Um, because it also undermines the ability for that politician to come forward with some sort of statement that shows remorse or shows that they've learned, because how could you possibly argue that you've learned when you can look at countless other politicians that have done exactly Mm -hmm. the same thing and destroyed their constituents, destroyed their ability to run for office or run for reelection and destroyed their families and loved ones around them and still do it. I mean, I, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm on a bit of a rant now, but (laughs) it's just, I, I, I'm Mm. I'm dumbfounded by this. I I, I think there's a lot of people that feel exactly the same way you do, Ewan. And we talked about this uh, on a previous episode with Steve Easterbrook at McDonald's, uh, the chief executive there who had many, many relationships with, with staff at the company. Um, This is, something that i mean purely when you're running for these offices and you're in the news like this there is a level of hubris there i think um and and it is true that a lot of guys think that they won't get caught especially you know for one of the relationships that he's had that came out um it started in 2012 
so when he's looking at that, he's probably thinking, you know, this has been going on for eight years um, and no one has found out. So he figures he can keep it under wraps. And I, and I do think that guys think that their situation is different, that maybe they're in better control or they've covered their tracks better or, um, you know, those sorts of things. And it just doesn't work out. Although, Ewan, my guess is there have been a lot of other extramarital affairs that have never come to light. I mean, there's a there's a there's a good likelihood um, of that as well. But I, I, I just don't think they are considering this as an outcome. Because if, if, if Cal Cunningham actually sat down and considered that this relationship with this woman, uh, Arlene Guzman-Todd, could hurt his Senate chances or hurt his opportunity for elected office at any level, I wonder if he would have proceeded with it. But he did anyway. Um and I can only surmise that it's because he just didn't think this was going to come out. It wasn't a serious or, or an outcome that he thought was was possible, um, which is, of course, the the, the, the fatal mistake there. Um, but you said one other thing, Ewan, just about, like, will we get to the point where, you know, extramarital affairs are just, uh, you know, blasé. It's, it's, it's fine. Everyone's done them. It's, it's old news. I do feel like we are getting to that point because if you look back at, you know, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and everything that came out of that, and then you look at Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. I mean, everyone knows that Trump has had extramarital affairs and he's been with porn stars <laughs> and it's been a non-issue. It's been a non-issue for his supporters. And I would even say his critics have, I mean, they've talked about it a lot in 2016, but it hasn't been something that that's brought up a lot because he is who he is. Um, and so that, that, that's quite interesting to me that we've come that far in, you know, 20 years. Yeah, it also raises the question of where are we possibly going to be around this issue yeah. in, an, in another 20 years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If the president can sleep with porn stars now and it's no big deal, where on earth are we heading? Yeah, I don't know. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. What have you got, Ewan? Well, Cam, I'm sorry. I don't have anything particularly happy this, this oh, week. No. I, I, I was sort of busy, you know, as you know, I, I kind of caught a, caught a flight midweek and, um, I, I was, I had a very, very busy week up until then. I've been kind of busy. It's been here and I haven't had much time to keep up with the news or read very much, which has probably been kind of a good mm-hmm. thing given, uh, what's been going on, having checked in on, on Twitter. Um, but one thing, uh, I did want to just sort of very, very briefly touch on because I know that today is World Mental Health Day. And, you know, as you know today is what I, I, what what day people could be listening. people could be listening to this podcast on right. many different days. OK, yeah. so sorry. This is this this would be uh, October 10th. Right. October 10th is World Mental Health Day. So, uh, yeah, I guess by your time, you've already you've already missed it, Cam. Yeah. Um, but for for those of us that are still in a uh, in an October 10th kind of day, um, it's World Mental Health Day. And I wanted to talk about this just briefly, Cam, as as a lawyer, because, you know, mental health issues, particularly issues around suicide among lawyers is really, 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 really quite, quite dire. So, again, to sort of put this in, in context, um, you know, suicide is the 11th leading cause of death among Canadians, yet it's the third among lawyers. Um, and lawyers suffer depression at a rate that's 3.6 times higher than the general population. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm concerned about this in the wake of the pandemic, 
right? So we know that the pandemic is really impacting access to a lot of social health and, and wellness outlets. So, you know, it's, it's more important than ever to make sure that, and this isn't really just for lawyers, but that for, for all working people, check in with your colleagues. I know a lot of you are, are working remotely and, um, and that's raised a lot of mental health issues for a lot of people as well, that again, they don't have access to their colleagues even to discuss these things. So I just wanted to give a shout out on this point, check in with your colleagues, give them a call, you know, send them a video message over Teams or Zoom or, or whatever it is that you use um, and just check in on people. Yeah, that's really important. I'm glad you brought that up, Hewan. Um, you know, it's an issue in Hong Kong as well. Um, you know, as you know, with 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 Chinese culture, a lot, a lot of times there's a lot of pressure on um, achievement to achieve. Um, and to do well. And um, that's been a huge issue here with people struggling with, with that pressure and with mental health uh, and the implications of all of that. So yeah, it's definitely something to, to keep in mind. And, and yeah, for sure, reach out to, to people who um, are around you and, and, and who look like they may need some, uh, some help. I'm going in a different direction, Ewan. Um, this is a New York Times. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, this is a New York Times article. And actually, it came out a few weeks ago, um, and I finally read it. It's a long-form piece, and it's this is another one of those things that just amazes me, how, how, how it got to this point. But I'm not sure if you heard about eBay's uh, issue, Ewan, where a couple of their executives were caught in part of this stalking story. Um, so the title of the New York Times article is Inside eBay's Cockroach Cult, The Ghastly Story of a Stalking Scandal. Um, and basically, I don't want to give the whole thing away, but there were two writers uh, of this blog um, that covers sort of the e-commerce or the, the, the secondhand kind of industry online. And so they often write a lot about eBay. Um, but they began writing some things that the company really didn't like. So they ended up going to extreme measures to try and shut them up, including stalking, including sending a box of cockroaches to their door, uh, you know, ordering pizza in the middle of the night and sending it to their house. Um, and this was done with, with management's knowledge inside of eBay. It's remarkable. Um, I am only giving you a little bit of what is in this article. It is shocking. And I highly recommend going through it. And I think, you know, it's interesting, you and this could even be a subject that we can talk about uh, in a future show, because th th this shows the sort of rot that was inside of eBay's leadership team as well, that it got to this point. Wow. Well, as you know, we've talked about on the show, Kim, tone from the top, right? The idea that it's the responsibility and duty of senior management and executives at a company to set a tone for the employees that ultimately occupy the positions below them. Um, yes. I mean, that's wow. I will absolutely read this. And, um, you know, if there's something that we can pull from it to talk on a talk about on a future show, we should certainly do that. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, the, the executives here, you know, said deal with these people, you know, their articles are bothering them. Do whatever you have to do. Um, it's, it, it, it <laughs> I, I won't speak about it anymore. It's uh, just just go read it, click the link and go through and read it. Cause it's, it's worth your time. 
Um, yeah, so based, so if I just search New York Times cockroaches, Amazon, eBay, I should eBay, be able to eBay, get not Amazon, or eBay, eBay. Excuse me. Yeah. Apologies, apologies to Amazon. Sorry, Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Anyway, you want anything else you want to chime in before we wrap this one up? Uh, No. One last thing, Cam. I just want to give a a very brief shout out to my former colleague, Allison Lee. Um, She's an employment lawyer. She's an amazing, talented counsel. And she just had a decision that she argued before the Supreme Court of Canada and she won. She wow. won with flying colors. So, uh, Allison, if you're listening, way to go. Um, very, very cool. Very, Congrats, very good Allison. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Well, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, you and coming to us all the way from Vancouver Island in the province of British Columbia. Uh, and me in Hong Kong <laughs> as usual. I don't get the uh, luxury of travel. Um, don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can also subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The account name PR Law Podcast, all one word, P-R-L-A-W podcast and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club so for you and christy this is cam mcmurchie light it up this has been the pr and law podcast with cam mcmurchie and you and christy if you enjoyed the show please share it with a friend or leave a review you can also join us on linkedin twitter instagram and facebook by following our account at pr law podcast that's all one word p-r-l-a-w podcast Thanks for your support.